So, good morning. Um, Let me just uh, say a few words about the the materials I'm going to be speaking about. I'll be drawing most of my sources from the, the Pali Canon. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Pali Canon, this is the, the collection of uh, discourses and monastic uh, training texts, which are called the Vinaya, that we find in the, the Pali language. Pali is an, uh, an idiomatic or a vernacular form of Sanskrit. A Pali is a, an idiomatic or vernacular form of Sanskrit that is similar to, but almost certainly not identical with the language the Buddha would have spoken. It's too complicated to go into exactly how that all works, but if you want to discuss that further, we can. But I think it's uh, broadly accepted, both by scholars and by uh, certain schools of Buddhism, that the texts we find in the Pali Canon are the closest we're going to get to what the Buddha said. Now, in the Buddha's time, they didn't have this kind of setup. Nothing was recorded, nothing was written down, it was an oral culture and these teachings, these discourses were uh, held in the collective memory of the, the monks and the followers of the Buddha for probably three or four hundred years before they were committed to, to writing. So obviously there would have been plenty of time for uh, things to have been left out, things to have been added in, and perhaps we can never really know uh, what it was that the Buddha said, what we would have heard had we been present at the time. So the the, the texts we are going to base these uh, seminars upon Um, go back a good way to the time of the Buddha, the the strongest uh, um, indication we have of, uh, of, of, of their going back that far is that we have a similar body of materials preserved in Chinese called the Agama, which were translated from a Sanskrit version of the same text in Pali in about the 4th century of the Common Era, i.e. 4th century AD. And since the the, the Pali materials and these translated Chinese materials are essentially identical, then it shows that the, the two bodies of monks, in quite one in North India, one in Sri Lanka, or Ceylon, had preserved in their memory 
a fairly exact uh, version of the same material. So there is some quite good grounds for um, positing uh, a, a kind of authenticity uh, to these early texts. But that's all I want to say about the, the textual background. Within the Pali Canon, um, linguists have, have recognized that there are different layers. Um, there are texts that are written in verse. There are texts that are written in a rather more um, ancient linguistic style. And so to some extent, they, you, we can begin to work out uh, what elements of the Pali Canon uh, are the earliest and which may have been subsequently added in the years after the Buddha's death. And I want to start with a couple of verses that are found in a collection called the Sutta Nipata, which roughly translates as the group of discourses. It's a collection of about a thousand verses broken into about seven or eight main uh, texts. And the language here, the style, and the fact that these verses are often commented upon uh, by the Buddha in other discourses uh, suggests that this is as, pretty much as early and as old as we're going to get. <clears throat> so I'll probably refer to the Sutta Nipata um, as we proceed through this week, but I think it's a good place to begin. So this is verse number 576. Just as for ripe fruit, there is constantly fear of falling, so for mortals, so for mortals who are born, there is constantly <clears throat> fear of death. So here we have an image an image that we're all familiar with, anyone who has grown apples or pears or any kind of fruit in their garden will know how a fruit um, uh, grows and develops and at a certain point is ripe and at one moment that we cannot predict with any exactness, that fruit will drop and will land on the ground. And the Buddha compares the life of mortals, in other words, of animals, of human beings, somewhat like the, to the growth and the falling of fruit. We think of ourselves as healthy, um, not excessively old in most cases, people, we are preoccupied and absorbed in the minutiae of our daily lives. That tends to take up most of our attention for perfectly good reasons. But very often it leads us to a kind of, of forgetting. We tend to assume that we're going to be around for a little while yet. 
what I've noticed um, with my elderly parent and relatives is that no matter how old we get, that same kind of buffer zone, I'm going to be around for a little while yet, stays about the same. Whether we're 30 or whether we're 90, we kind of assume that we'll still be around in a year or so from now. So in other words, we're not really taking on board uh, the reality that uh, this fruit could suddenly drop and that would be the end of it. Of, uh, four verses later, uh, the Buddha gives another image. He says, look, while one's relatives are looking on, wailing much, each one of these mortals is led away like a cow to be slaughtered. You find this same image in, in a later Buddhist text by Shantideva where he compares human life to um, cattle in a field. And every day the farmer will come and take one of the cattle away to the abattoir. But all the other cattle just sit and stand there chewing the cud eating the grass, getting on with being cows, unaware that their number is diminishing on a daily basis. So again, it's the same kind of metaphor. These are things that intellectually we know full well, but experientially they don't fully register. So although we um, intellectually um, know all this stuff, um, it's not big news, really, that we're going to die. Experientially, it's something that we don't really take on board. We haven't really registered. Now, the Buddha starts his whole um, teaching with the idea of uh, dukkha, with the idea of suffering. And suffering begins, or his description of suffering, begins with this uh, statement that, uh, that, that birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering, and death is suffering. The focus is very often on death because death is utterly inevitable. We may not get terribly sick. We may not even get old. But one thing that will happen for sure is that we will die. And the Buddha in a sense, begins his whole teaching with waking us up to the fact of our mortality. The, the, this term that we hear a great deal about in Buddhism, impermanence, 
is to a large extent to do with the fact that we will die, that our life is constantly changing. As we sit here in meditation, as we observe our breath, we can notice that every breath we take is one breath, one breath less to take. That our life, in keeping with that of all organic systems, is entropic. It's running down. It's wearing out. And as one grows older, one starts to notice in the mirror that one peers into each morning to wash or shave or whatever, one begins to notice the, the invasion of wrinkled skin and the greying of hair and the general decrepitude of the body. Of course, we do our best to stave this off, but it's well worth, I think, uh, pausing and looking more carefully at this as a means to try and um, uh, fully grasp uh, the situation we are in. There's a, a passage which is found in the Sanyutta Nikaya where the Buddha is in dialogue with Mara. Mara is the, the Buddhist equivalent of the devil. And Mara says to the Buddha, Life is short. Live like a milk-sucking baby. And the Buddha replies, No, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Mara says, Life is long. You should live like a milk-sucking baby. And the Buddha turns around and says, No, life is short. You should live as though your head were on fire. Now again, we have, I think, a, a very potent image that our forgetting of mortality, our avoiding and ignoring and disguising the fact that we are mortal, that our life is running out each moment, that at some point it will stop in a very final way, allows us to, in a way, become uh, infantilized. That our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to life, becomes one of kind of greedily and obsessively drawing whatever pleasure, whatever satisfaction, whatever uh, well-being we can, we can suck from each moment. And this may be comforting. It might work, in a sense. But it will not, as it were, prepare us or really allow us to see and appreciate our life from a more truthful perspective, that of the ripe fruit dropping from the tree, that of the cow's being led to slaughter. So the Buddha's injunction is to recognize that life is indeed short and one should live as though one's head were on fire. 
This is very much an injunction to, to wake up to the, um, uh, the fragility, uh, the temporariness of our existence. To recognize that each day might be our last day on earth. It might be. There's no guarantee that we'll be here tomorrow. Statistically, it's likely that we will be. And we're not going to tell the cooks not to prepare the meals for tomorrow because we might all be dead. But nonetheless, it's quite likely, uh, it's quite possible that one or more of us may not be here, let's say, within a week or two or three or four. And again, we know this, but at the same time, we don't really know it. And it's here that the practice of, of mindfulness uh, comes into play. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. But I want to put it in this wider perspective that the practice of mindfulness is not just about being mindful of your breath and focusing your attention on some object of meditation. But the practice of mindfulness is being mindful, is, is to cultivate mindfulness of our human condition. Now, Part of the problem in English is, lies in the very term mindfulness itself. The word that we translate in Pali is sati. Um, in Sanskrit that's shmurti. And sati more literally means recollection. It's the word that's used for uh, remembering something. If you've been to Delhi, you might have visited the place where Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. It's in the Birla house, somewhere in Delhi, New Delhi. And what it's called is the Gandhi Shmurti, the Gandhi Shmurti which means the memorial to Gandhi, the Gandhi Denkmal, the, the place where you remember Gandhi. You go to this place and you remember the life of this man. It may be that it's a great inspirational person for you. For whatever reason, you are encouraged to remember him. And this word shmurti, memorial, is exactly the same word as sati, which we translate as mindfulness. Now mindfulness suggests being mindful very much of what's happening in the present moment, which is indeed one of its important functions. But in translating it as mindfulness, we forget that it's more literally meaning 
to remember something. And so we find, for example, that um, impermanence and death are encouraged, um, are things which are encouraged to be remembered, to be mindful of one's mortality, to recollect one's mortality. That's also the practice of what we call mindfulness. Now, when I was a a Tibetan Buddhist monk, this is quite some time ago now, in the 70s, one of the practices that um, we were instructed to do every day was a practice of recollecting death, mindfulness of death. Now, clearly this is not something one is mindful of in the sense that it's happening right now, because if you're alive, then obviously you're not dead. So to recollect death requires that you think about it in a certain way. For the first years in which I did meditation, nearly all the practices involved reflection, thinking, remembering, recollecting. And the most effective of these practices was the practice of recollecting one's death. And the Tibetan texts that um, uh, describe these meditations break the recollection down into a number of steps or stages. And there are three main ones. The first is to recollect the fact that death is certain. Now again, we know that, or there might be a little bit of our mind that says, but, maybe when I get to be 80 years old, they'll science will have sorted out mortality and death and I can take some pill or have an operation or be genetically modified or something and I won't die. Well, you can entertain those thoughts if you wish. I suspect um, that we will all die, no matter what advances in science are made, at least in our lifetime. In any case, by meditating or recollecting the certainty of death, one reminds oneself that of all the things that we can anticipate or look forward to or fear in the future, in other words, from the next moment onward, the only one that is certain to happen is the fact that you will die. Of course, we spend our time planning for anything but But all of the things that we tend to plan for are things that in fact may never happen because our death might come first. So to meditate on this doesn't mean that you just think it a couple of times or read a passage in a Tibetan Buddhist text, but you sit down, you close your eyes you settle your attention on the breath, just as we are doing here, and for about 10 or 15 minutes, 
you slowly and thoughtfully ponder this idea. And that's what the word in English, meditate, traditionally means. It means to to think deeply about something. It's not to think of it in a speculative, um, sort of cerebral way, but rather to think more reflectively, contemplatively, and in fact, what it comes down to is slowly. And to think every day means to think about this again and again. To keep reflecting on this point until it begins to impregnate or infuse your felt sense of being alive, of being mortal, of being fragile. You think, for example, of all of the creatures that have been born on the surface of this earth in the billions of years in which there has been life. And every single one of them has been born and has died. That is simply the rhythm of life itself. And you too are no exception. There's nothing distinctive about me, Stephen, that is somehow exempt from that fate. And so in ways such as this, you try to bring home the notion that your death is something certain that will happen at some point in the future and to begin to feel that. So it's not an intellectual exercise. It's a process of um, integrating ideas into your actual felt sense of who you are. Now, of course, all of this implies that we haven't yet done that, that our thirst for survival has somehow marginalized the awareness of our actual mortal condition. So we try to bring that home. The next step in the reflection is to is to contemplate the idea that although death is the one thing that is certain, the time of death is completely uncertain. And so you have this paradox in a way, the uncertainty of the only thing that is certain. The uncertainty of the only thing that is certain. This one certain thing could happen at any time. Now I found that an effective way to bring this point home was to sit in meditation and to imagine someone I, I have known, let's say a friend or a relative, who has died, but a person who is much of the same age as myself, much of the same background, let's say, not really terribly different from me, and yet here I am, still alive, meditating on death, whereas John, 
or Charlie, or whoever it might be, or Fred, these are just a few that I can remember off the top of my head, are no longer here. Now, what was there about John or Charlie or Fred that made them somehow different from me in this regard? Well, basically nothing. They succumbed, in this case, to cancer or to, in one case, a drug overdose. And from one day to the next, they were gone. Naively, it feels that only other people die. And that is self-evidently the case, because we're here to think it. But we need to somehow go beyond this idea that we are exceptional. Death is in many ways the great leveller. The fact that we are all mortal is what unites us in our common humanity. And the more that these ideas begin to sink in, the more that we have less and less basis for egoism, for pride, for feeling rather special, because we're all mortal creatures, ripe fruits waiting to drop. And the third part of this reflection, although I've modified it slightly from the classical Tibetan way, is to ask oneself, well, if death is certain and the time of death is uncertain, what should I do now? What is the implication of this reflection on death to how I act and behave and live my life now? These reflections somehow force one to um, be much more clear about what one's priorities are, what really matters. I mean, how often do we, do we keep putting off things that we deep down would very much like to do, but we find some excuse or we say we're too busy and we keep putting it off. But if we knew that we only had, let's say, six months to live, how would that affect what we do now? How we um, focus our energies in this moment? How we sort out what really matters? It's, it's really only when you gain this sense of emergency or urgency, can you begin to feel what the Buddha was meaning when he said, you should live as though your head is on fire. In other words, there's not a moment to waste. Now this doesn't mean that you then get worked up into a frenzy of busyness, because that will probably not be very helpful either. But somehow we need to touch base deep down within ourselves about what it is that really matters for us, what's really crucial in our lives. Now this I feel is not an exclusive uh, Buddhist thing 
you'll find the same emphasis in other religious traditions. You'll find the same emphasis in uh, Hellenistic philosophy, for example, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Um, you'll find this in, uh, in any number of traditions. It's a common uh, human uh, tendency to forget the state we are in. And this, again, I think is a reason why it's useful to translate or to think of mindfulness as a kind of recollection, a kind of remembering, because then we, it's more clear that one of the things that human beings suffer from is forgetfulness. To forget is the opposite of to remember. And we live, as it were, in a cloud of forgetting. That we forget that we're going to die. We forget that this might be our last day on earth. We forget, in other words, that we're alive. Because the, the strange consequence of doing these kinds of meditations these meditations on death, is that they do not lead to gloom and morbidity. By meditating on the certainty of death and the uncertainty of its time, and by asking oneself, therefore, what should I do, this does not um, diminish one's sense of being alive, it enhances it. It's only when you become conscious of your fragility and mortality that you are suddenly shocked into an awareness that you are here at all, that you hear, that you see, that you smell, that you taste, that you touch, that you think, that you feel. Again, we forget that we do those things. We just take it all for granted. And yet if we knew that death were imminent, our senses would be magnified, our presence of mind would be uh, heightened, our uh, sheer um, sense of wonder at being on this earth at all would be magnified to the nth degree. There's a passage in an Epicurean text where the writer uh, tries to imagine um, that one had never noticed, any, one had never been conscious at all. One had never seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched, thought. And then suddenly, all of those things were present to us for the first time. The fact of sitting in this room now of noticing the trees waving outside, the sound of someone speaking. And the, the writer says, and surely that alone would be enough. We would not need to search for anything else. And this, I think, is very close to what we experience or what we can experience 
through the simple fact of being aware, of being mindful. It might strike strike you if if you're if you're new to this that the whole idea of, of just sitting still, of not doing much except notice the breath, to be in silence, that this all seems rather uninteresting and maybe a little boring. But as you persist in it, you may find that you cross that threshold from boredom and disinterest into suddenly or maybe gradually uh, waking up to how extraordinary it is to be here at all, how extraordinary it is to be breathing, to be listening, seeing, feeling, so that rather than constantly the mind reaching ahead of itself for some kind of stimulation or some kind of recognition or some kind of um, something special to happen, something interesting to happen, and thereby in a way forgetting that the most interesting thing that has ever been and ever will be is happening all the time, namely that we're here and that we're alive, one begins to appreciate, perhaps for the first time, the extraordinariness of the ordinary or the unfamiliarity of the familiar. It's as though we kind of live with a kind of a glaze in front of our eyes and ears and so on, which renders everything rather opaque and dull and familiar. And the practice of awareness meditation, of simply sitting, of seeing, is a method we can use to somehow wear away or to erode that um, opacity, that dullness in perception, that restlessness in which we're constantly trying to get ahead of ourselves to something more interesting. Or if we're tired of material stimulation, perhaps we've turned our attention now to, to spiritual attainment, enlightenment, or some other mystical goodie that we've read about or remembered from our own experience in the past, and we try and get that. But that too is another form of, of forgetting what's actually happening now and instead grasping at something that is not present, not yet occurring, may never occur. And so this constant emphasis in remembering what is happening now. And this, therefore, is what the Buddha calls recollection or mindfulness. And I'd just like to read some passages from the, the text called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse on uh, the grounding 
of recollection or the foundations of mindfulness. When, when, the, when the Buddha speaks in these texts, he's generally addressing monks. And so the text says, a monk will. But I think we have to remember that's simply the context of the time. It just means a person. A person, or a, in this case a monk, a person, abides <coughs> contemplating the body as a body. Ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, he or she abides likewise contemplating feelings as feelings, contemplating mind as mind, contemplating Dhamma as Dhamma. I'll explain that later. Now the, the crucial word here is <clears throat> contemplating body as a body, contemplating feelings as feelings, as. In other words, without trying to introduce or add anything else, just embracing one's experience for what it is. In other words, embracing that thing which is the closest to us, the most intimate thing in our life, and yet something that we are continually and perversely forgetting. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the body as a body? Here, a monk, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and, establishing, and established mindfulness, ever mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Now that may not sound terribly exciting, but this is where the Buddha introduces what he understands as meditation. It's a radical returning to what is most present, but unfortunately is often most ignored, the fact that we breathe. And that's the instruction that we're working with today, being aware of the breath. But the reason we do that is not because the breath is something that has some special spiritual quality, but simply because that is the very root, the very pulse, the very rhythm of our life. 
without which we wouldn't be here. The fact that we can breathe, breathe in, breathe out, is the fact of our being alive, our being in this primary relationship to the environment, the air, the photosynthesis that goes on in the trees and the plants. That's how we are in this biosphere. And what the Buddha is asking us to do is to remember that, to recollect it, to actually um, spend time going deeply into what that feels like in every moment, in every breath. And he gives an example to illustrate this. He says, just as a skilled turner, in other words a woodworker, someone who works with a lathe, or his apprentice, when making a long turn, understands, I'm making a long turn, so one practices mindfulness of the breath. Now, this is, I feel, a rather useful metaphor. Um, it, 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 it certainly, point, it certainly uh, suggests that mindfulness is not a question of just kind of staring a bit more intently at something. I think often we have that impression that if I'm mindful of the breath, I kind of key myself up and I lock myself onto the breath and I kind of eyeball it with intense uh, attention. But the Buddha uses a metaphor of a craftsman, someone who works with wood. It may be someone who's making chair legs or beams for a house or a piece of sculpture. In other words, the wood turner, the carpenter, does not have a passive relationship with his piece of wood, but he has an active relationship with it. He works the wood. He engages with the wood. And he knows precisely what he's doing. Now, if you observe a skilled woodworker, you also notice that there's something both very economical and very effortless in what is done. The person has a mastery of his materials and a mastery of his tools. There's an ability, quite a wondrous ability, in a way, to make little effort to achieve exactly the effect you seek. You work the materials. You're gentle but effective. You're probing but you're not brutal. But constantly there is a sensitivity to the grain of the wood, a sensitivity to the sharpness of the chisel or the lathe. So it's a very different picture to that of somehow just staring at something a bit more uh, sharply. 
So likewise, with the awareness of the breath, the awareness of the sensations in the body, the awareness of sounds, we're relating to these things. We're not standing back and looking at them with cold objectivity. Because they are part of us. They're part of our life, they're part of our world, our body. So it might be helpful to try to reflect on this when we do this practice of mindfulness. To what extent are we working with these materials of our life? The feeling of the breath and our relationship to the breath and the body and the, pr- and the tread of our feet against the ground. Try not to cut oneself off in a kind of detached bird's eye view, but rather to immerse oneself in what it's like for me to be breathing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking and feeling. To have that active engagement, involvement with what's taking place right now. And this leads to what the Buddha calls full awareness. In fact, there are two key terms he's using in this text. One is mindfulness or recollection. In other words, we recollect the body, we recollect the breath, we remember that we're breathing. And that then allows us to be fully aware that we're breathing. There's, there's, a, there's an important distinction there. There are two acts, one following the other, remembering and then being aware, fully aware, of what we have recollected. And when we get distracted, of course, when the mind wanders off, the first thing we have to do is recollect that we're meditating on the breath. And then, having done that recollection, we can focus our awareness more fully into what we're now doing. And this is how the Buddha describes the practice of full awareness. He says, Again, monks, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. Now again, we don't need to get too preoccupied with every detail of that, but the point is that this practice of full awareness is not confined to sitting on a cushion. We may start there, as indeed 
this text also begins with the monk going into the woods, sitting down cross-legged at the root of a tree. But it then moves on to show how this practice is one that uh, comes to infuse uh, every aspect of one's daily life in everything you do. And the Buddha doesn't leave anything out. He goes to, you know, go and, if you're sitting on the toilet having a crap, you're fully aware of that. If you're just walking slowly up and down, as we will be doing shortly, you're fully aware of that. When you're eating or drinking or tasting something, you're fully aware of that. So, right from the outset, um, it's quite clear that this practice of meditation is not some um, spiritual exercise that you do in a formal setting in a room on a cushion. And that you do that when the bell rings and then when the bell rings to tell you to stop and then you can take it easy for a bit. The whole point here is that the the formal uh, practice we do in this room is really just a kind of uh, preparation for living in this world in another way altogether, in a way in which we have gone beyond our forgetfulness. And forgetfulness, as we probably have already noticed, happens each time we drift off. And what's remarkable is that this instruction, sit still and watch your breath, is extraordinarily simple, but it is also extraordinarily difficult to do. Uh, The mind would prefer to do pretty much anything else than just sit here and follow the breath. So why can't we do it? What is it within us that is so resistant, that seems to rebel against the very idea of just sitting still, watching the breath, being aware. That's a question that I've asked a great deal. Why is it so difficult? Why do we not want to do it? Even when we've been meditating for years, we can still have plenty of sessions where the mind is just running berserk, going all over the place. It almost feels as though this practice is somehow threatening, that it seems to be exposing us to something we'd rather not know. And I suspect that what it is that we are running away from when the mind drifts off into its fantasies is we're running away from the fact of our birth, sickness, aging and death. And again we come back to where we started. uh, That this practice is very much about opening our minds and opening our hearts, opening our bodily awareness to the fact that we are alive. And the more that we notice that, we really notice that, 
the more we become aware of how tentative, of how ephemeral all of that is. In other words, we begin to to sense what this word impermanence really means. What it means is that I am impermanent, very impermanent. We all are. So that's um, all I want to say this morning. Um, I hope this is relevant to what we are already doing in our meditation. And before we break, I'd like to say a few words about the walking practice that we're now going to go outside or stay in here to do. Again, as the, as the Buddha makes quite clear, the practice um, is as much to do with how we are uh, in the world as it is to do with how we are when we sit in here. And so as a kind of a halfway point, somewhere between our daily busy lives and our sitting on a cushion here, uh, we very much encourage you to do walking meditation, to consciously, with full awareness, walk. So for those of you who, who are un- unfamiliar with this, I'd suggest that you go outside, as long as the weather's as good as it is now, and we have all these lovely grounds, and just find a place about 10 yards, 10 meters long, Stand still for a few minutes, um, just experiencing the weight of your body against the ground, the pressure of your feet against the earth, the, the rush of the breeze against your skin, the sound of the trees and the birds, uh, the color, the shapes, the forms that you see with your eyes, maybe some slight fragrance, some smells, maybe some lingering tastes in your mouth, aware of the feelings, the emotions, the, the whatever is going on in your mind, and just acknowledging all of that, just seeing that for what it is without adding anything and at the same time, without wanting things to be different somehow, you might have a pain in your lower back. And you say to yourself, well, I'd be able to do this meditation very easily as long as if I didn't have that pain in my back. In other words, to try to embrace the totality of what is going on for you in that moment. Without judgment, without hesitation, without preconditions. And then slowly, just walking one step after the next, this distance of 10 or so yards, and getting to the end, and turning round, and coming back, and slowly beginning to become more, more intimate, more familiar with what it's like to walk. Again, we do this all the time. And yet, how aware are we of what we are doing? 
of what's going on. So often when we walk or go on a walk, our minds are often somewhere else, perhaps already at their destination. But here we have nowhere to go. We're walking purely for the sake of walking. And we're trying to get back into a primary relation with the body as we walk. So we start noticing how each foot lifts and moves and settles. The next one lifts and moves and settles. And it's really a very remarkable thing to be able to shift, in my case, 80 kilograms of bone and flesh and fat and muscle without falling over, for the most part, up and down and back and forth. So trying to bring into walking the same quality of attention as you bring to the sitting in here, just becoming more and more attuned to the the miracle of walking. If the mind gets distracted, which it probably will, then standing still, or you might want to sit on a bench. And settling the attention once again, let's say in the breath, and then standing and walking, so that over the course of our days here, we begin to develop a kind of a rhythm, Uh, we create a kind of atmosphere, an environment, both in this room and outside, that supports and sustains this cultivation of mindfulness or recollection and this cultivation of awareness. Try not to be too tense or um, uh, or stressed about this in any way. Be patient with yourselves if the mind doesn't really want to do it. Try and be relaxed, but at the same time alert attentive and present. So we'll now leave to go and do that practice and we'll meet back here at quarter to twelve where we'll have a sitting before we break for lunch. Thank you.